And I hope you understand too, this is a aerial flight very quickly over this timeline. Yes, I would like to go deep into every one of these texts of scripture and every piece. But again, there's sometimes I'd like to have a nice fast overview to kind of get it. And, and to realize, too, we're only talking about about 10 hours of time that we're going through. So it's it's a high speed run for what we're trying to do and try to understand and see what Jesus went through. It's hard to imagine that a single human being would go through what he did. But as you break it down and look at it, it's just, it is mind-blowing. All right, this is part three of Walk with Jesus to the Cross. Just an amazing section, and I'm, I'm thankful that you guys are putting up with me with this, but it's, this is just such an exciting section to walk through. But last week we walked with Jesus from the upper room the Garden of Gethsemane, the betrayal of Judas, and the arrest. The questioning of Annas, the previous high priest, and Jesus has now been delivered to Caiaphas, the current high priest in the Sanhedrin court. They questioned Jesus to see if he was God, and Jesus' reply was, I am. This threw the high priest into a rage. We're reading the text. Then the high priest rent his garments, saying, He has spoken blasphemy. Why need we any more witnesses? Behold, you have heard this blasphemy. What do you think? And they answered and said, He deserves death. And they all condemned him as worthy of death. So we see their hatred and cruelty of Jesus in its extreme they hit him with their fists, spit upon him, blindfolded him, and continued hitting him, asking him, prophesy, who hit you? In an overlapping time period that we'll start with this morning, we're at Friday, 2 to 4.30 a.m. in the morning. We're going to be looking at two individuals, Jesus and Peter. While Jesus is suffering in the Sanhedrin, Peter is outside denying that he ever knew Jesus and was not one of his men. Before we can move further, we must look at who Peter was and what occurred in his life for him to deny Jesus. Peter, by trade, was a fisherman carrying on the family business. And you remember in Jewish education, you went up to a point, you memorized the first five books, of the Old Testament, and if you weren't worthy to continue on, you would return back home and then start learning the family business. Obviously, the family business was fishing. So that's where Peter is at. That's his foundation. That's his start. He was a rugged man, and one writer described him this way. Peter, a two-fisted man, rugged, violent, unpredictable, strong-willed, blustering, and a courageous leader. He was the mouth of the disciples with what you see Peter in his rawest moments. And we do. We do see just the rawest aspect of Peter just as he exists and as we hear him. At first, it did not seem that Peter was much of a God-seeker, for it was his brother Andrew who heard what John the Baptist was teaching about Jesus and the one that brought Peter to Jesus. 
You also remember, too, Andrew's the guy that you bring anybody to to bring him to Jesus. Remember? He was the one who figured out where you get the kid with the food. You also remember that one time when some Gentiles wanted to talk to Jesus, the other disciples brought them to Andrew to bring him to Jesus. So Andrew's ministry was to bring people to Jesus. He brings Peter to Jesus. We look in John chapter 1, verses 40 through 42. It says, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, We have found the Messiah, that is the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which, when translated, is Peter. There is no doubt that as we get to know Peter, we see a man who loved Jesus and desired to serve him. Again, in Luke 5, 1 through 11, one day as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, the people were crowding around him and listening to the word of God. He saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats and one belonging to Simon and asked him to put out a little bit from shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boats to come and help them, and they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. For he and all of his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken, and so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, Don't be afraid. For now on, you will fish for people. So they pulled their boats up on the shore, left everything, and followed him. We notice in verse 5, the respect that Peter had for Jesus as he addressed him as master. In verse 8, we see his humble attitude before Jesus. And this will need to be refined more and more as Peter spends time with Jesus and continues on. Think with me, though, through Matthew 14:22 through 32. The scene is set where Jesus and his disciples, Jesus loads his disciples into a boat and wishing them to move up the lake while Jesus disperses the crowd and then goes again into the mountains to be with the Father alone. Remember that the storm is working hard against the man and the boat. It says that they rowed, R-O-W, the fact that they just made no progress at all because the wind was buffeting hard against them. And in the midst of that early morning hour, Jesus shows up on the water. Of course, the natural thing that they went through was, oh my word, there's a ghost, phantom. They had raised with a lot of the stories of fishing in the lake, about ghosts and about 
sea monsters and everything. And it, it kind of shocked them. The first thing that Jesus does, it says, be calm for it is I. So the immediate thing that Jesus does is calm their hearts. But then something strange happens. Peter does something that no normal person would think about doing, especially a fisherman. What's he do? He wants to walk on water. Now, he knows, I know, you know, that walking on water is not a possibility. It doesn't happen. Even on something like the Salt Lake, which is so hard that you can float on top without even trying to float, but walking, uh, no, you're still going to go in. But the interesting, why would anyone, especially a fisherman, think this was possible? That's the question. You see, Peter, a disciple of Jesus, is following his rabbi Jesus and wants to do what his rabbi does and be like his rabbi. So Jesus is walking on the water and Peter wants to be and do what Jesus is doing. It's the only reason why he'd want to be out there. That's why he wants to be with Jesus, because that's his rabbi. He's doing it. He wants to do it. And yes, Peter, bold at times and more often overly, confident. Matthew 16, 21 through 24, Jesus announces that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer and die and be raised on the third day. Peter rebukes Jesus for such a thought, yet Peter is rebuked harder as Jesus states, get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me and for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Peter was also very sure that the other disciples would abandon Jesus, but he would never. But Jesus told him that before the cock crows twice, he would deny Jesus three times. Peter again, over the top, over-enthusiastic, over self-assured said even if I must die with you I will not at all deny you we all know yes Peter did deny Jesus publicly three times the end of his denial has indescribable pain nothing I think could even my mind could imagine we find in Luke 22 61 through 62 Peter replied Man, I don't know what you're talking about. Just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. And Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him before the rooster crows today. You will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. Peter was not left in this condition for the rest of his life. Jesus, after his resurrection, restored Peter three times, one for each denial. What did Peter need to learn? What do you and I need to learn? We, humans, sinful humans, attempt to live independently from God, thinking we have the better way and the strength to do it all. That is so far from the truth in the scriptures. Jesus was very clear when he stated that apart from me, we can do nothing. John 15, 5 through 6, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. 
If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown in the fire, and burned. So for Peter to go on serving Jesus, he needed to be brought down, down deep. To serve and follow Jesus requires total dependence on Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit. Peter needed to learn that for his whole life in ministry, to really to understand that it's a complete, total surrender of his want and will. It is the same for us today. We see in Peter what is required to be a follower of Jesus. So through Peter's writings, we see that he did learn this lesson and continued to teach this truth to all who surrendered their lives to Jesus for salvation. It would be an interesting study to go through the Gospels and see the rawness of Peter, the, the endless ambition of Peter, but then go back to his writings and see what he grew up and learned, how it changed his life. So it's now Friday, 3 a.m., 5 a.m. Jesus, by this time, had been up com for a complete day. He was known for rising early in the morning to spend time with the Father, and yet he is still in prison somewhere in Caiaphas' palace. So now we hit the final religious trial. In those two hours, the religious leaders were in such a rush to get Jesus to Pilate by early morning, they disregarded the 24-hour law that they had to say before a final sentence is actually given. They rushed the deal. The combined text is in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but it says, Then immediately when it was day, all the elders of the people came together, both the chief priests and the scribes, and held a, a consultation against Jesus to put him to death, and they brought him up into their whole Sanhedrin, saying that if you are the Messiah, tell us. But he said to them, If I should tell you, you would not at all believe, and if I also should Say, in query, you would not answer me nor let me go. Hereafter will the Son of Man be seated at the right hand of the power of God. Then said they all, So you are the Son of God? And he said to them, It is as you are saying, for I am. And they said, What need have we for more testimony? For we have heard it ourselves from his own mouth. And the entire company of them arose... And they bound Jesus and took him away, delivering him to Pontius Pilate, the governor. The misleading question only shows the misguided thoughts of religious leaders that they had of the Messiah. They wanted a nationalistic leader, not one that, that would come die for their sins. Jesus knew from past times that even if he had, had explained it again, they would still not believe. How do you answer a question when no one's listening? So the charge on Jesus is blasphemy and the Jewish penalty is death. He claimed to be the Son of God and he was. The Jews could not execute anyone under Roman rule. So now they must pass Jesus off to Pilate, the Roman governor, to rule for the execution. Now, you hit another person. Who is Pontius Pilate? Well, Pilate was the Roman governor of Judea 
from about 26 to 36 AD, which is a kind of an abnormal thing because normally it was about a three-year term. But he continued on for, for over 10 years and under the reign of Tiberius, who was Caesar from 14 to 37 AD. For many years, there was very small amount of historical information that we could really understand. And, and you get a little bit out of Josephus, you get one other writer that helps us to understand Pontius Pilate. But again, it's very thin and, and no real strong evidence until 1961, a limestone inscription was found bearing his name and relating him to the reign of Tiberius. And with that same tablet, they also found some coinage that also identified. So again, a little bit more history, a little more time, you start getting some more reality of who this Pontius Pilate was and the time period he was in. But you think about it, there was a constant conflict between Pilate and the Jews. He's had a long-running history with them, not a good one. He showed this character early in his term in a confrontation described by historian Josephus. Apparently, a new cohort of guards was assigned to Jerusalem. Bearing a standard of undefined design that was sacrilegious to the Jews, and when a group of Jews surrounded Pilate's residence, insisting they'd rather die than allow the offense to remain, Pilate relented and removed the standards. There's much more conflict. But now we've moved into a new time period. It's Friday, 6 a.m. to 7 a.m. Combined text of Matthew, Mark, and John, we read, So they led Jesus from Caiaphas to the Roman Judgment Hall, and Jesus stood before the governor. Now it was early. So they did not go into the Judgment Hall. They should not be defiled by might, but might eat the Passover. Pilate therefore went out to them, and he said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered and said to him, If he were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him up to you. So Pilate said to them, You take him and judge him according to your law. The Jews therefore said to him, We are not permitted to put anyone to death, that there might be fulfilled what Jesus had said in signifying by what death he would die. Why would they not go in? What's the deal? Remember, their traditions held the fact that they would never want to touch anything Gentile. Not a Gentile, anything that a Gentile would have touched for fear that they would be ceremonially defiled and therefore would not be able to participate in the Passover. So they wouldn't even go in. So Pilate comes out to them. Here is a question for thought. As you think about the whole tragedy of the night before and the Jewish leaders desire to have Christ killed, why does their attempt to honor their man-made rules seem like the height of hypocrisy? Pilate hates the Jews, does not want to give in to their request, but he also must keep peace to keep his position as governor. It's got kind of a conflict, self-interest conflict. He tells them to take Jesus and judge him yourself, but they have sentenced him to death and they cannot execute him himself. They're bound by Roman law. They cannot execute. But Rome does not have any laws broken because someone states that they are the Son of God. 
the Romans of many gods, so what would be one more? So it's so for Rome, there's got you got to have something going on here. They come and say, well, he's a blasphemer. He says he's he states that he's the son of God, and Pilate goes, so. I don't have any laws that he's broken, so I can't put him up on the level of execution. Now you're going to start tweaking things, right? So the, remember, the Jewish method of execution was by stoning, but God has chosen for Christ to die on the cross, the cursed tree. So there's a shift there. So there's everything working that God is, is aligning here. So after Pilate's pushed back to the Jewish leaders, Nato find and create something that would be a violation of Roman law worthy of execution, their lie builds and continues. Now the text is from Matthew and Mark and Luke, and here's where they start playing the game. But they began to accuse him, saying, We found this fellow perverting the nation and forbidding to give tribute to Caesar, saying that he himself is Messiah, a king. Ah. Uh-huh. Uh, playing a game here, right? And the chief priests and the elders continued to accuse him of many things, but he answered others. The text is weird here, but he answered, uh, no, never mind, we'll move on. Then said Pilate to him, do you answer nothing? Do you not hear how many things they are charging against you? But Jesus still answered nothing even to one charge, so that the governor marveled greatly. Notice this issue going on. First of all, they say, oh, this guy is trying to go against Caesar, and and everything should be about Caesar, and oh, we're just like that, right? And we want to be a great concern here in the fact that, look, this man is going against Caesar. What's their heart attitude to? They don't like Caesar either. If anything they could do, they could try to get, get, get back at him and, and just get rid of Rome. The charge that Jesus would be killed for is the fact of being a king. A king in Roman's situation right now is the fact it's tantamount to committing treason. So now Pilate has something that he must investigate. It's now shifted. Now he's got something to see over. So Pilate starts his inquiry. Pilate, therefore, went back into the judgment hall and called Jesus, and he asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered and said to him, It is as you are saying. Then Jesus said to him, Are you asking this of your own accord, or did others tell you of me? Hmm. So is Jesus trying to lead a rebellion? It doesn't look like it. Jesus asked Pilate a question which put Pilate in an absolute position that it could expose him and his curiosity of Jesus. Pilate's sarcastic reply in John fifteen thirty-five through 37, Am I a Jew? Serious. Pilate replied, Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it you have done? Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place, and you are king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you say that I am king. 
In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. Pilate's reply to Jesus' refusal to be connected in any way with what he's supposed to be religious superstition. Jesus' response to Pilate's question ignored the question on what he had done to incur the wrath of the Jews. Jesus moved to a spiritual matter and shared what his kingdom was truly about. The kingdom was not of this world. Jesus came into the world to proclaim God's kingdom for its rules over the hearts and conscience of believers. Pilate came to a point that he cannot charge Jesus, so he goes back out to the crowd. This is multiple times. He's, it's like, I, I don't have anything. So we have Luke and John brought together, and, and on saying this, he went out again to the Jews and said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they kept insisting, saying he is stirring up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, starting from Galilee and even to this place. Ah, Galilee, thank heavens. Pilate's got a little bit of a breather here. Why Pilate? Why, why this Galilee thing? Why did this suddenly come up? Why did that perk up Pilate? Well, Pilate's very clear. I don't have jurisdiction over Galilee. And if that's where he started and that's where this thing's going, oh man, I've got an out. Right now, Herod Antipas, who is the governor over Galilee is here for the Passover festivities. So let him rule. Notice what Pilate's doing. Ah, I got to get this thing off of me because this is really volatile. So in Luke 23, 6 through 12, we see now Herod Antipas and his. Now this is quite an interesting section to actually go through and start picking out the pieces and you get a little bit of a hint on who this man is and his intrigue about Jesus. So on, on hearing this, Pilate asked if the man was a Galilean. Uh, see, go looking for that out. When he learned that Jesus was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at the time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased because for a long time he had been waiting to see him. From what he had heard about him, he hoped to see him perform some sign of some sort. Notice that wow we'll amplify that in a bit he plied him with many questions but jesus gave him no answer the chief priests and the teachers of the law were standing there vehemently accusing him of course they did then herod and his soldiers ridiculed and mocked him dressed him in an elegant robe and they sent him back to pilate much to his chagrin right and that day Herod and Pilate became friends because they had been enemies. So now they've got a common issue that's between them. Herod was nothing more than a superstitious, godless man wanting Jesus to perform some kind of magic show for him to enjoy. Herod wanted to know about the show, but Jesus remained silent. That's a little frustrating. Herod, not getting what he wanted, turned Jesus over to the soldiers to make sport of Jesus, mocking him and dressing him in a brilliantly colored robe. Then Herod sent him back to Pilate. 
you feel like something's just getting shuffled back and forth. We've now moved to Friday, 7 a.m. to 8.30 a.m. One last controlling push by Pilate, but yet the, the abdication away in the, of the masses to avoid conflict, full well knowing that Jesus was innocent, Pilate's got to get this thing off his hand. This thing is not working well. So in Luke 23, 13 through 16, Pilate called together the chief priests again, the rulers and the people, and said to them, you brought me this man as one who is inciting the people to rebellion. I have examined him in your presence and have found no basis for your charge against him. Neither has Herod, for he sent him back to us. And as you can see, he has done nothing deserved death. Therefore, I will punish him and then release him. I'm done. Punish Jesus. He did, almost to the point of death. Combined text in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It says, but the chief priests and the elders stirred up the crowds and asked him rather to release for them Barabbas and to do away with Jesus. So the governor answered and said to them, which of the two do you wish me to release for you? Would you therefore that I release for you the king of the Jews? But they said, Barabbas. And they again, all of them cried out together saying, no, away with this man, and release for us Barabbas. Pilate, therefore, in a desire to release Jesus, called to them again. And in answer said, What shall I do with Jesus, who is called Messiah, whom you call King of the Jews? But they all cried out again, saying, Let him be crucified. And they kept on shouting, crucify, crucify him. So a third time Pilate said to them, why? What evil has he done? I find in him no guilt deserving death. So after chastising him, I will release him. John 19, 1, 2 brings up, then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they slapped him in the face. Jesus is tortured almost to death. One writer described it this way, The Roman scourging of Jesus was gruesome and torturous. The soldiers took Jesus back into the palace, removed his clothes, and tied him to a post. Then they beat him with a whip a cat of nine tails, which consisted of nine straps of leather with a ball of leather at the end of each strap. Stuck in the ball of leather were bits of bone, iron, and chain to make the whip heavy and sharp. It was not uncommon for a person receiving a Roman scourging to die from it. The Bible tells us that Jesus was beaten beyond recognition. And as I described before, as that whip and those cat of nine tails come around into the flesh and they pull back, chunks of Jesus came flying out. He is tortured. He's brought almost to death. 
And again, Pilate brings Jesus out to the crowd, still finding no guilt in him, thinking this would be enough to satisfy them. But John continues in John 19, 4, 5, once more Pilate came out and said to the Jews gathered there, look, I am bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, here is the man. The God-man Jesus stands before them and Pilate questions, hasn't he suffered enough? Why go any further? Yet again, Pilate brings Jesus into question him, thinking that he had the true authority over Jesus. But that was definitely not true. John 19, 10 through 11. Do you refuse to speak to me? Pilate asks. Don't you realize I have power either to free you or to crucify you? And Jesus answered. You would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. Yes, Pilate did have authority, but that authority came from God alone. Jesus clearly identifies that Pilate, too, is a sinner, but the sinners with that greater sin lies in those who delivered Jesus to be crucified. So the final verdict of Pilate is given after continual pressure. Mark and John bring together, Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered and said, we have no king but Caesar. So Pilate, when he saw that nothing availed, but rather that a riot was building up, took water, washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I washed... I am innocent of the blood of this man. You will bear witness to it. Then all the people answered and said, His blood be on us and our children. Now all that is left is the final decree of execution. And their voices and those of the chief priests prevailed. So Pilate, desiring to satisfy the multitude, gave sentence that it should be as they demanded. And he released for them the man Barabbas, whom they asked for, who had been thrown in prison for insurrection and murder. But Jesus, he delivered up to their will that he should be crucified. The exchange of an insurrectionist and a murderer is unthinkable. And to see the hatred against the Savior cannot be fully understood by words, and the suffering of Jesus cannot be compared, but yet we are also called to suffer for his namesake. Peter wrote much about suffering for bearing the name of Jesus. Peter in 1 Peter 2.20 said, But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for nothing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commended before God. 1 Peter 3.14, but even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats and do not be frightened. In 1 Peter 4.19, so then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. So why did Jesus suffer and die? 
to take my sins, your sins on him to the cross, to redeem us to himself as a chosen people, to take my sins on himself to give me righteousness that I do not deserve. And he came to save those who were lost. Let's pray. There's no way in our human minds, Father, that we can even understand all that Jesus suffered, the hours of agony, the hours of torture, the hours of isolation. He's been alone, completely alone, from the time his disciples deserted him. And he will go alone to the cross. Father, it's, it's so difficult for us to grasp and, and, and comprehend this deep truth in our own lives that you sent your son to die on a cursed cross for us. Those of us who are born rebellious, we are sinners, we're haters of you, and yet you came, took on flesh, lived the perfect life, and died for us as a substitute for our sin. God, thanks is not even enough compared to that which was given. It's an honorable and, and accepted thing that we are living sacrifices to you, which is our reasonable service of worship back to you. It is where we begin because you have sacrificed it all for us. God, help us to see more clearly all that Jesus took on himself and bore to save us. He had one thought, one desire, one will, is in love to pay for our sins and to redeem us. God, help us to walk not casually through this life as those saved and redeemed, but as those fully aware of the weight and responsibility we have to serve you with a whole heart. God, grant us grace and peace as we continue this week, keeping in mind that which was cost on a cross for us, for freedom. In Jesus Christ, amen.